listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. You know I love the 80s. I love the 80s music and the movies. And, and over the last 10 years, I've been blessed to interview a lot of the musicians and actors I love. And, and my guest today, I think he's interviewed every 80s musician. He has kept the 80s alive. And he's just, uh, when I was in college in New Jersey in the 80s, he was in L.A., DJing in the 80s, and my guest is Richard Blade. How you doing, Richard? Hey, Steve. I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I want to talk about the 80s, but I, I got to say, I was doing my research, and I found out you're a novelist. You've written three novels. Tell me about this. Yeah, I have, actually. Um, I've got a fourth one ready to go, but I've pushed it to the springtime because I've got something else coming out um, this Christmas uh, about the 80s. But no, I always wanted to uh, write and I'd done a few screenplays and after I did my autobiography I really realized I knew now how to put a book together and I'd never done that before so I went back to one of my old screenplays that I'd written that got great response from some really big producers I mean like Jerry Bruckheimer and Ridley Scott had both loved it but it said it was too expensive to make as a movie at the time for an unproven writer so um, I thought, I'm going to turn that into a novel. And that became my first one, which was called SPQR, which is Latin for Senatus Populus Qui Romanus. It's the banner of Rome. And I often say it's what people would see first when the Romans were coming to town. And often it would be the last thing they would see, you know, before the short swords went into them. So I wrote this uh, novel, SPQR, and it got great reviews and sold well. So I thought, ah, oh, this is cool. So I did my second one, which is called Birthright, which was uh, kind of a chase thriller, very much like a national treasure. And that did well. And then my buddy, uh, Mike Evans, who I worked with at K-Rock, he told me the story of his life. And it, for a three-year period in the late 60s, he'd uh, done something that was just absolutely amazing. And so I said, I'll write that. And that became my third novel. So uh, SPQR, Birthright, and Imposters. Now, I got to ask you, I've written screenplays before. And writing a screenplay and writing a novel is so different. Because, you know, screenplay, it's pretty much visualized. You know, you can say interior, this, that. But a novel, you have to be so, uh, just explain everything and just be so imaginative. How is that for you going from writing a screenplay to a novel did you find it very laborious at first no because like you say steve uh you see it visually so when i was writing the novel though it took me a lot longer because you know as you said it could say interior living room and then you leave it at that in this respect with a novel you describe the living room you describe the shag carpet you describe the worn couch you describe the father rolling in on a wheelchair and the wheels not moving well over the thick carpet but i would visualize it in 169 which is the format you know for a widescreen tv or movie and i really enjoyed it because i was seeing it happen and with the first one there's so many battle scenes these romans that at one point are fighting native americans because that's the idea these small group of romans end up washed up on the shore in north carolina two thousand years ago and um hijinks ensue and so uh, I would get to see it happen in front of me and I'd always wanted to see this movie and writing the novel gave me that and one of the thrills is seeing the reviews from people for all three novels saying this has to be a movie 
And it's like, yeah, because that's how I wrote it as a movie. It's it's a novel, but in my mind, it really is a film. But instead of celluloid, it's pages that you're turning. Now, how did your fans take to it? Because, you know, you did write your autobiography, World of My right. Eyes. And, you know, people read that and they hear about your life. And they're, they might be expecting some more Richard Blade stories. And they pick up a novel and they love it. But they're not sure. What was was there any confusion where people were like, I love this, I love this, love this, but there's no eighties musicians. There is nothing in it. Well, I was very clear about that when I started posting it on social media and mentioning it on the radio, I'd say, Depeche Mode is not in this. It's a novel. <laughs> and it's gonna take you back, you know, in the case of SPQR, I'll take you back over two thousand years. And so please don't expect to hear Soft Cell and Tainted Love because it's not going to show up. And um, people were great about it. No one, because I was so clear and so upfront, no one got confused and said, hey, I thought it was going to be the sequel to World in My Eyes. And um, though there will be a sequel to that, I didn't want to put it straight out and cash in. I want that to be as good, if possible, as World in My Eyes. So that's going to be at least another two years down the pipeline. Now, do you, because there are different genres, your novels, as a writer, do you find it invigorating to have different genres, or is it something where you sort of want to stay in the same genre, you know, the, the, the Roman times? I mean, how is it when you sit down, do you just say, I'm scrapping it, I'm going to write this, I want a new beginning? Well, no, it's because it's different genres, I come in clean, it's not really a question of scrapping it, like, SPQR has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that's it. You know, people said, are you going to do a sequel? And it's like, I, I don't want to cash in and just do a sequel for the sake of it. Um, Birthright, I deliberately left open for a sequel, and I have an idea for a sequel using the same characters. Uh, with Imposters, it's a segment of Mike's life, Mike Evans' life, and um, it Again, it ends at a particular point. And one review uh, was like four stars instead of five. And it was, but fortunately, I found the person on Facebook and contacted <laughs> them directly. And they, they said, I would have given it five stars if it had been more on Mike's life. And I wrote to them and said, thank you so much for your review. I really appreciate it. But it deliberately was only that three-year period because Mike said that he might write something himself about the following years and i completely understand because now there's a big gap from 1970 to where mike is today uh but you know it's mike's life and it's his story and he wrote back to me oh, i can't believe you reached out to me i'm changing my review and he gave me five stars <laughs> so um but each novel i approach as a completely different film i like just walking into the cinema again to see a film this one i sit down at the uh monitor and let the words just pour out of me and I, I learned a lot from world in my eyes in the fact that when i was writing world in my eyes i kept going back to correct and correct now i don't do that i just go and pour everything out let it go all the way down whether it's 500 pages spqr 300 plus for birthright or imposters and then I go back and then meticulously go through and correct it and say, well, you know, this should go here. And, and um, that's, that's the way I do it. But it's really a labor of love. I so enjoy doing it because I get to see it all come to life. Do you think, you know, the mu loving music and, and, you know, being such a popular DJ, 
and you know just being immersed in that in the 80s scene and being around creativity do you think that wore off on you when it came to writing just because when you're around these cutting edge musicians and you're around people who are talented you're you have something in common you have a bond has that helped you at all in your creative process it may well have you know i'm actually listening to uh, an interview i just did yesterday with uh, john easdale of drama rama and he used to, you know, he was the main sing- songwriter for the band and continues to be so and so m- maybe a little bit hopefully it uh, you know wore off on me if it did then I'm going to go and hang out with Martin Gore a bit. So that would hang You know, I'd get some of that talent on me. But uh, it does make you want to be creative, I think, because you see these people who are out there putting out incredible albums and great songs and then wonderful performances. And so it does make you want to step up your game a little bit and deliver something. Um, and, and one thing I've always said is if I wrote a novel, whether it's the next novel, the one after, whatever, and I honestly didn't think it was great, I wouldn't put it out because I wouldn't want to bore anyone. That's the last thing I would ever want to do is bore a listener or a reader. That's a good attitude to have. It's funny you mentioned John Easdale. I got him, must have been eight years ago when I was recording in Burbank. He came into the studio and did my show, and he brought a guitar. And I love anything, anything. And he played this version. He said, can I, and I said, you have your guitar, play it. And I've never heard the version. It always makes me happy because after I walked out, I'm like, I have the only version of anything, anything he's done this way. So he's a great guy. And he's a fellow New Jersey guy like me. Oh, yeah. He's from Wayne, New Jersey. One of the nicest guys you can meet. I mean, so honest and so down to earth. Now, I got to ask you, when when did your love affair with music start? Were you a kid who was always in front of the radio or how did you get involved? Because you've had such a long career, and you started in England, you came to America, and you were in a scene that just blew up. You were in the right, I mean, you were in L.A. in the 80s. But how, when did your love affair with music start? It started uh, almost at the same time in two different places, but both in the same town of Torquay, uh, which is in the south of England. And one was in my buddy's friend, my best friend's uh, bedroom, John Bennett, he had a a record player and he would buy the latest songs from the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and we would listen to them together. We'd open the albums and we'd sit there and we'd put it on track one, let it go all the way through side one, then we'd flip it over. So I really got into music at that time. And the other was when my dad, about in that same period, within six months, bought me a transistor radio, a small little radio. And at night, I'd go to the park, a place called Kitson Park in Shippey in Torquay. And I'd sit there with my friends, with Mike Frost and with John and Ian Actor and Malcolm Allsop. And we would tune in the pirate radio stations and listen to all the new music that they were playing. And we'd talk about bands like The Move and The Kinks and just really enjoy this music that we couldn't hear anywhere else because the BBC weren't playing it at the time. Radio 1 hadn't started, so you had to listen to the Pirates. And uh, that really got me hooked on music and on the DJs that were playing it. How did you find the Pirate stations? Like, Because, you know, did they just last for so long before they get shut down? Was it Because it's not like Internet. It's not like, hey, you know, Google, uh, hey, by the way, send a message. How did you find them, and how long would they last? Well, they lasted until BBC Radio 1 came on the air, because at that point there was no need to listen to the pirates because BBC Radio 1 hired away some of the biggest pirate DJs 
and stuck them on the air and suddenly started playing the music that we fought so hard to find and the signals would drift in and out. But you found them uh, not only through word and mouth, but in all the newspapers they wrote about pirate radio because the BBC were trying to shut them down, the Coast Guard would go out, and as long as they were three miles away from the shoreline of uh, Great Britain, then they were in international waters and they could broadcast. So every time there was a storm, the Coast Guard would be out there, you know, <laughs> hoping they were going to be blown into uh, the waters and they could be arrested. But uh, Radio London, Radio Caroline, um, and so many of the others, about three other pirate stations, uh, were on these boats that floated out there, which had a you know 200-foot transmitter. And during the day, you couldn't hear them. Not in the southwest, on the east coast you could, but at night it would bounce off the ionosphere and we could pick up these radio signals and it it became something, yeah, let's listen tonight. You know, that was that was our thing. You know, we're 12 years old and we're tuning in to pirate radio. It was great. Now, how did you become a DJ? I know, and you know, as I said, I, I read Wikipedia and you can never tell if Wikipedia is right, but it said you went as the young Dick Shepherd. Now, is, is that true, or is that one of these Wikipedia things that someone just said, oh, that sounds interesting? Well, that was a nickname that Kevin and Bean gave me when they found out that my original DJ name was Dick Shepherd. But I was Richard Shepherd until I went to college. And then on my first day of college, um, we had the captain of the hockey team in the uh, same house as me. There was 13 people living in houses you know and there was houses all around the college about a hundred or two hundred of them and in my house there was the captain of the rugby team there was the captain of the hockey team and there was a college dj and uh, i went in i met phil richards and he said uh big guy hockey guy you know like to get into it and he came up to me and he goes what's your name and I go, it's Richard Shepard. And I go, well, I'm Phil Richards. He goes, we're going to have two Richards in the house. He goes, too damn confusing. You're Dick Shepard. And uh, that was it. I was not going to argue with him. And uh, so I became Dick Shepard at college. And because uh, the college DJ was there, I uh, thought, you know, I'm going to start seeing what that's like. So I hung out with Norm at the first dance. And Norm was not a good-looking guy, but he was great with his music. But I did notice the girls were hanging all over him at the college dance. And I thought, wow, you know, they like the music. And because they like the music, they're liking Norm. This might be a good thing to do. So I said to Norm, you know, I'll carry your records. I'll help set up the gear. And I did that. And very soon I was uh, doing the first two hours for Norm and uh, of the college dances. And then he would just come in and close out the night. And uh, wasn't getting paid or anything at the time. And then at the end of the year, he was a third year, I was first, and he was leaving. And he goes, I guess you've just become the college DJ. And that was that was how I kind of got into DJing. And it was great. And because Oxford has 27 university colleges, on the nights that my college, Westminster, wasn't doing dances, I would lug the gear into my car and go and DJ at other colleges. And so uh, it was great. Now, how did you end up in the States then? I mean, it's something that, you know, is it, was it a dream of yours as a kid to come to the States? I know like a lot of musicians, when they got to tour the U.S., they were like, we finally got to the States. We never thought we'd see it. What made you decide to come to the States? And were you, were you a little bit scared because States are a little bit crazy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Sunshine, Blue Skies, California Girls was uh, my thought. But I toured Europe for two years as a club DJ over there. 
and uh, I played in Norway and Denmark and Sweden and Spain and um, Germany and Austria and places like Switzerland and places like that and loved it. But, you know, the weather in the winter comes in and coming from England, you grow up with gray skies or as my dad used to call it, the gray blanket that would hang over you. And I just saw, you know, a movie one time and I was in a town called uh, Badafoss, which is 500 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And it was December and the club had a NATO base next door to it. And we used to get a lot of American servicemen. So I was on an American base and we were watching this movie called My Name is Trinity. And it was, it said California right at the beginning. This guy was being towed across uh, a river by his horse. He was kind of like on a, you know, an Indian uh, kind of uh, slide that he'd made that the horse was towing. And the sunshine was beaming down. And I thought, this is what I want. I'm going to go to California. I didn't realize until many years later that there was a, a spaghetti Western shot in Spain with Italian. <laughs> so I would have ended up, you know, in somewhere near Madrid if I'd have really gone to where it was shot. But I ended up in California instead and uh, never looked back. You know, I thought, hey, I, I'll try and make it in America. And uh, it worked out. What was the music scene when you came over? Because I want to find out how, you know, you got involved with the 80s, and you were there in the beginning. I, I was lucky enough where I grew up that we had MTV, and so I got to see a lot of it. And I was lucky also in college, I had a roommate who was from Hong Kong who brought over a lot of bands like Ultravox and different bands we had heard, and it was just something that it really, this is in 83, really expanded my mind. I was like, okay, this is more than what I've heard. What was the scene like when you came over, and like, you know, when you first got over? There was, it was before all these bands that we all know of now. Oh, yeah. The, the scene was one word, disco. And I came over from playing disco in Europe, and disco was just beginning to start in America. And so uh, I went to all I, I went to all the radio stations first, and none of them wanted, wanted to give me even a look in. That was it. So uh, And I had to work. So I went to all these little clubs that were starting up. And I got a gig at a place called The Plank House, which was a restaurant that was going to put in a discotheque. And uh, they needed a DJ. And they didn't want one that was just mixing. They wanted one to entertain their clients and, you know, talk about the dinner specials and drinks and all that kind of stuff, as well as playing the music. And so uh, I auditioned and I got the gig. And uh, I started out there playing disco, just like I'd been in Europe. And uh, my uh, mom and dad sent my records over and then I went from there to another chain uh, called the Red Onion and programmed the music for them. And then I got asked to do some private parties. And, but they were paying me a lot. They paid me as much in a night as I was making in a week at uh, these restaurants. And so uh, I started playing private parties. And uh, I worked uh, for a bunch that had the same caterer called Along Comes Mary. That was the name of the uh, company. And she said, I'm going to be doing a uh, big celebrity party. And I'd like you to meet the celebrity, but I can't tell you who it is. And I said, okay. And she said, let's just follow me. I'll meet you in Malibu and follow me up to uh, her house. So I, I you know, carpooled behind her and drove up to this house uh, across from Paradise Cove, which is a beautiful beach, shot a lot of Baywatch there and that later. And um, we went to this house and I got out and the caterer from Along Came Mary got out and the, the woman came from her house and she said, uh, Richard, I'd like you to meet Barbara. And I said, hi, Barbara. You know, I'm 
my name's uh, my name's Dick Shepard, and she goes, oh, my son's going to have a bar mitzvah, and uh, I'm looking for a DJ, and we'll be setting it up over here, and want this kind of music, and I'm like, great, that's terrific, I can I can do that for you, and so we left, and she goes, well, what did you think of her? And I said, well, you know, I I, I know her music, and she seemed very very nice, and she goes, you don't seem that impressed, and I said, well, I don't actually play that much Barbara Streisand, <laughs> and. Uh, but I knew she was, you know, the, like the biggest thing in the, in America, biggest, most popular singer around. But if it had been Anita Ward and you can ring my bell, I would have been blown away. But Barbara Streisand, yeah. But she ended up being super, super nice. And um, I did her and, J- and uh, Elliot Gould's um, son's bar mitzvah, uh, Jason Gould. And it turned out to be a huge breakthrough for me because everyone who was anyone was at that party you know people like donna summer and larry hagman and stuff like that and so i got invited to do a rap party for dallas and um i did so many celebrity parties um including for michael jackson and then i started doing a whole bunch of parties for michael including the um victory tour for the jacksons when they went um and and stopped being the jackson five because of copyright became the jacksons but the s looked like a five and uh so it was a huge launch for me as uh, a, a DJ doing private parties. And I took that and became very successful with it, but I still wanted to do radio. And that was, that was my dream. And I heard about this contest that was happening on K-West in Los Angeles for the best unknown DJ. And they said, uh, you know, send in a cassette of a 10 minute radio show that you, you're putting together and we'll do an audition. And so I sent in my little cassette and I did a remix of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, which, you know, I didn't know either that would get thrown out because it was such a hallowed band, but they liked it and uh, I won. And I got an hour on the air at K-West and uh, the guy I was with was J.J. Jackson who went on later to MTV. And he could not have been any nicer. He let me do everything I wanted to do put together a playlist with uh, ACDC and 38 Special and stuff like that because it was a rock station. And uh, I put together this playlist, did the hour on the air. He gave me a couple of cassettes of my show and then uh, I copied the cassettes and I sent them out. And about two days after I'd sent out the cassette, I get this phone call from Bakersfield from a guy called David Lawrence and goes, hey, I'm the program director of uh, Magic 98 in Bakersfield. Would you like a job? And that was how it all started for me. Now, you ended up going to K-Rock. Now, what was, you know, I, when I lived in L.A., I listened to K-Rock, and K-Rock had changed, you know, different things. You know, it would change their music. You'd hear different things. And L.A. was always like that. You'd, and a lot of times it happens, music changes, and you're like, wait a second, I was just listening to that. Now, now it's Christian radio. What the hell is going on, you know? But what was it, explain to me what it was about the 80s that just got to you. Like, you know, because you, you knew everybody. You, you know, you were on the forefront. Did it, did it just smack you in the ass when you first heard it and you said, this is going to be a new sound? I mean, what was that like to be on the forefront of that? Well, yeah, it was, K-Rock was one of the stations I wanted to be at in Los Angeles. When I first got to L.A., K-Rock was nothing. It was uh, a tiny little station called KPPC, and then they changed to uh, K-Rock, and it was... Uh, in Pasadena, which was, you know, in the, in the boonies at the time. And uh, it didn't have any impact. But then I was working, I left Bakersfield and went to San Luis Obispo, which is a beautiful beach town. 
and uh, I was playing rock music there for college girls. Oh, that was a great summer. <laughs> and um, I was also uh, playing stuff that my dad was sending me from England. And I was playing Human League and Soft Cell and Ultravox, who you mentioned earlier, and Visage and The Police. And I was loving this music. And um, I said to the owners of the station, you know, this is, this is the future. It's not Toto. You know, we got to play this for the college kids. And they'd hired me. They also owned the same station as Bakersfield. When I left Bakersfield, they said, well, no, come, come to our beach town and, and just do one summer there because we're doing our first ever rating period. They'd never been rated before. Uh, and it was really important for them. They said, we want to come in number two because the number one's going to be K-Sly, which is a country station. And they're huge and everyone listens to them. But if we can get number two, it'll be great. And uh, if you'll just do that, then you know, you can leave and we'll give you great references and all that. So I said, okay. So I went in and I programmed the station for five months and it went through its first rating period and we got the ratings and it was fingers crossed when they came in and uh, I got the phone call and I said, uh, so how do we do? And they said, well, we didn't get number two. And I was like, oh shit. Okay. He said, we're number one. I said, are you kidding? And he said, Kesley got a five rating. I said, what do we get? And he said, you got a 28. And I was like, oh, my God, that's crazy. So uh, they said, well done. This is fantastic for us. It's fantastic for you. We're going to have a great year. And I went, whoa, 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 hold on. No, we're not. I'm leaving. And he said, well, you, you, are you kidding? You're number one on the central coast of California, the whole, whole central coast. And I said, yeah, but I told you I was just coming here to go through that one ratings period. So I'm going to take the numbers and I'm going to go to L.A. And they said, well, where are you working in L.A.? I said, I don't know yet. I haven't got a job. They said, hang on, you're going to quit the number one radio station in the central coast of California. And you're going to go back to Los Angeles without a gig? I said, yeah. <laughs> and so I did. And I got hired at KNAC. Uh, to do overnights and they were trying to compete with K-Rock at the time but they had a really low signal because of FCC ruling you can't you know just turn your transmitter up they only had 5,000 watts and could only be heard you know in like Long Beach and parts of Orange County but it was a gig in LA and I was there and then I uh, got to, to because they were paying me virtually nothing to do overnight six hours midnight to six I started doing some club gigs. So I would DJ from like 9 to 11.30 and then race down to Long Beach and jump on the air. And uh, one of the clubs said, we're going to start advertising um, because the club night's doing well for you. And I said, okay. And they said, would you voice the commercial for us? And I said, sure. And they said, okay, it's going to be airing on K-Rock. And they uh, said, you can go in and record the commercial. And so I went to K-Rock and I recorded the commercial and the DJs, heard this English accent on the air and I got approached by Mike Evans who I just wrote imposters for and Raymond Bannister who did the morning show and they said hey we want you to do some stuff but really English it up you know hello how are you doing old chap you know that kind of thing so I did spots for them and then uh, April came uh, heard it and she was doing the nighttime show and she said I want you to do this one with a sexy English voice I want you to say wake up with Romando and Evans, but go to bed with April. And I was like, okay, you know, I can do that. So suddenly my voice was all over the radio station at K-Rock. And uh, Rick Carroll, the program director, came up to me and he said, are you the English guy? And I went, yeah. And he goes, 
we're doing this uh, trip to Hawaii, and all the DJs are going. And so uh, we're going to need people to fill in for two weeks. And I got a few people. We got this guy from uh, a band called Oingo Boingo who are going to fill in. This guy called Danny Elfman is going to do it. And um, the uh, girl who does the shows on Channel 9 on KHJ, the Mistress of the Dark, uh, Elvira, is going to do it. And um, we've got one opening. So would you want to do um, nine till noon? And I said, sure, absolutely. He goes, all right, you'll fill in for Denise Westwood. So I said, great, that's fantastic, Rick. And he said, yeah, but there's one catch. And I said, what? He said, you've got to quit KNAC. Because uh, I can't have you on KNAC and on K-Rock. And I said, all right. Um, he goes, but we're not going to pay you. And I said, okay, that's that's fine. And he goes, we've got no job. You know, when the DJs come back, uh, that's it. You know, you have to go. Um, and I, I, he said, because I took me a long time to get this lineup, you know, Ramondo and Evans and then Denise Westwood and Jed the Fish and Freddie Snakeskin and Dusty Street and April Whitney and Sam Freeze. He said, so, you know, I love all of them. And they've all, they're all coming back. So it will be two weeks and then you're going to be on the street. And I said to Rick, are you going to Hawaii with the DJs? And he goes, no, no, I'm, I'm staying here. And I said, so you'll get to hear me. And he goes, I, I told you, it doesn't matter whether I hear you or not. You won't have a job because I really like the lineup we've got. And I looked at Rick and I said, when you hear me, you'll hire me. And he said, okay, let's see. And so uh, I, I did it. And at the end of the first day, Danny hadn't shown up because he was stuck in the studio working on uh, a new album. And then after that, Elvira didn't show up because she was uh, doing three shows, taping in advance for Channel 9. So I ended up doing a nine-hour show. And in the uh, final 30 minutes of the nine-hour show, this white-haired old guy walks into the studio. I say old guy, he's probably 15 years younger than I am now, but he seemed an old guy to me at the time. He had the white hair and he stood there and he walked in while I was reading an advert, a live spot for the Parrot Place in Van Nuys because they're having a sale on McCaws, big deal. And so I'm reading this spot and he walks in, he goes, hey, where's Snakeskin? So I hit the microphone off and I go, excuse me, I'm on the air. So I turn it back on, I'm going, and the sale ends on Saturday night, so come on down. And he goes, I said, I wear snakeskin. So I turned the mic off again. They said, he's in Hawaii, so uh, I've got to finish this commercial. So I hit it on again, and I carried on reading it. And he goes, but I need to speak to snakeskin. So I turned the mic off, and I said, if you don't walk out the studio right now, I'll fucking throw you out. And then I turned the mic on again, and I finished the commercial. And I ended up, you know, uh, ending up the show at 6 o'clock, and handing things over to uh, the next fill-in DJ, who I think was from um, Mike Ness from Social D. And uh, I walked out, and Pat Welsh, the general manager, comes up to me, and he goes, wow, that was pretty something. You're doing nine hours. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted, uh, but thank you. You know, I, I enjoyed it. He said, yeah, it sounded great. And uh, he said, I got someone who wants to meet you. So I said, okay. So I walked back with Pat. I follow him to his office. And that's when my stomach dropped because someone was sitting behind Pat's desk and I didn't know Pat Welsh well. I only met him twice, but I knew that he was a rough, tough guy and no one sits in Pat's chair. 
and he goes, I want you to meet Ken Roberts. He owns the radio station. And it was the white haired guy I told to fuck off. <laughs> and he just looked at me and he go, he looked at me and then he looks at Pat and he said to ask him because he didn't want to talk to me. He goes, ask him why he told me to fuck off. And I just stepped forward and I put my hands on the desk and I leaned over to Ken and I said, because as far as I know, the only way this station makes money is by selling commercials. And somebody I didn't know was interrupting a commercial. And I asked them nicely twice to let me finish the commercial. And when they didn't, I told them to fuck off because no one is ever going to take money away from a radio station when I'm on the air. And he looked at me and he looked at Pat and he goes, I like the kid, hire him. And so that's how I got into K-Rock. Well, once you were in K-Rock, how, you know, you, you've gotten to know so many musicians and you have your podcast where you interview musicians. How right. did you start relationships with them? Was it something that they would, because you were in LA, they would come to the station or how did you start your friendships? I know you dated Terry Nunn for a while and, you know, all these people. How did you meet all them? Well, they would come into the radio station or they would be doing concerts and the uh, record company would say, can you come down and uh, be part of, you know, the, the K-Rock presence there and introduce the band. And I would do that. And um, when I would do it, I, would, I, I don't know if it was just that I did a little research about the groups and that I was when I would do the interviews with them or I'd meet them. I didn't push them for anything. It wasn't like, I need time with you. I need drugs with you. I need drinks with you. It was just like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm from Torquay. Oh, my parents went to Torquay on their honeymoon. That's great. I'm from Liverpool. And uh, we would chat for a little while. And then I would usually be the first to leave rather than the last at the party kind of thing. And musicians, particularly when they're breaking and you know, their songs are happening, aren't used to that because everyone wants a piece of them. And so because I just talked to them as normal folks, they were, I think, like, wow, that's pretty unusual. And because I wasn't asking them for something, mm -hmm. they would always say, well, I want to go back and do the, my next interview with him. And so uh, it started as um, something that they wanted to do. And then we just became friends with so many of the you know the acts and the djs at k-rock had different groups that they related to you know like dusty street at night she was very much into goth bands so if it was susie coming to town she would always get susie and same with peter murphy and same with daniel ash and people like that for me it was always duran duran and depeche mode and new order and george michael and people like that so um those those were my bands and we you know ended up becoming friends and you know, hanging out. Now you toured with the Pashman, right? You went on, you went out with them for a while. Yeah, I, I did. I went uh, with them on the one-on-one -on -one tour, music from the masses. And then uh, when they kicked off their next tour, they had me come uh, fly out to Florida and join them there and do the uh, interview for them launching the tour. And um, at the hard rock, the brand new hard rock that was just opening, it all kind of coincided. And so uh, I got to do that. And then I, well, actually toured on the road uh, with Spandau Ballet in Australia, which was uh, pretty incredible. So it's always fun to be to do that. And like when Erasure come to town um, and Banana Rama recently, you know, they asked me to open for them in Los Angeles. And I really enjoy doing that. And I'll be doing that on September 3rd at the Greek Theater 
I'll be doing uh, sets between the bands uh, for Lost 80s Live. So it's always interesting. Now, you, you were so immersed in the 80s, and, you know, the music climate changes. You know, we've seen it from, you know, 80s, I mean, just the new wave, metal, grunge. What is it like when you're immersed in a scene and you know all these people, they're friends, and then you start to see the, their careers changing a little? Is that hard for you because you're like, you know how talented they are, you know how nice they are, and all of a sudden they're going from big arenas to smaller places. What is that like when you're you're involved in it, you're not in the band, but you're close to the band? It's sad sometimes because, you know, they've had that that moment of glory or those years of glory, and then they have to reinvent themselves. But I've seen a lot of bands do that, and they've gone from playing at amphitheaters to playing at clubs. But in many ways, a lot of them put on as good a performance in a small venue as they did in a big venue. And these days, I think you can make more money <laughs> playing even in the smaller clubs than you could when you went out on the road. I was just going through um, a podcast I did with uh, Andy McCluskey of OMD, and he said that throughout their years of the 80s, when they were doing If You Leave and So In Love and Secret and Tesla Girls, they made no money, nothing. They actually lived at home with their parents still because they had no money, because they had a bad contract. They signed it when they were kids. And when they actually went out on the road and toured with Depeche Mode on Music for the Masses, they were the number two on the bill, and they were being paid $5,000, but they had to pay all their costs. They had to pay their travel. They had to pay their hotel. They had to pay their roadies for setting up their gear. And there's four of them, um, not only Andy and Paul, but Malcolm and Martin, splitting the money. So they went out and they played 101 dates with Depeche Mode, making 5,000 a night. And you go, well, do the math. That's 500,000 500, and $5,000. But no, they ended up losing close to three quarters of a million because of the costs of going around on the road and touring and doing all that kind of stuff. And that's what led to the eventual breakup of the band. But now when they come out and tour, when they play uh, 80s weekend at the Microsoft, they're going to be paid 120000 just for a 30-minute set. So it was it, it's initially tough for the bands, and you feel bad for them. But for the ones that have kept going, because of the resurgence of the 80s and because of the love of their music, and if they own their songs, if they own their publishing, they're mostly doing pretty well these days now you you were you left k-rock you you left in 2000 right you went to the right you got out of the business yep. between the 80s what kind of music were you playing until you left and was it were you happy playing that music because you know you you were so immersed in the 80s i mean what were you playing at that time well i was fortunate because i did richard blade's flashback lunch and so I got to play the 80s and keep it alive on K-Rock. And it was actually introduced as a joke because they thought they would do a flashback weekend and it would burn out. They would play for Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, nothing but 80s music. And this was in like 1981, 82. And then get rid of the 80s forever off of K-Rock and just be playing Nirvana and Pearl Jam and 
Hoover Stank and Soundgarden, crap like that. Sorry if you like them, but not fans. <laughs> and um, but there's other music. I, I like current music. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not all in the '80s, but uh, you know, Hoover Stank. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's you know. My mum used to say, if you've got nothing to say, good to say about someone, don't say anything. So I won't say anything. And um, so they put it on for three days, think it would burn out, and they got so much response from the listeners, they put together the flashback lunch. And that ran for two years. And then Kevin Weatherly decided he was done with it. He didn't like 80s. He was the program director. And he would take it off the air. He took it off the air two days two days it was off the air and he got so many complaints that he called me up on the Wednesday and because Monday and Tuesday it was off called me up Wednesday morning 10 o'clock said get your ass at the station right now you know we're going to be doing the flashback lunch and so it ran and it, it I think it's still on the air at K-Rock I wish I you know I wish I'd copyrighted the format but, <laughs> now, um, now, you know now why'd you leave Why'd you leave and go oh, to the Bahamas? Well, was it just something that you just said, I've been doing this for a long time, I need a break, and well, of course, it's the Bahamas. I mean, so, you know. Well, I, when I was a kid, I made a list. And on that list, it said that I wanted to, I, I loved Jack Cousteau, and I grew up on the south of England. If ever you're going to get sunshine, it's going to be there in, in Torquay, and it's gotten a fairly clear water, and I would go out, and I used to make my own wetsuits and surf in the winter, and then... Um, snorkel and then scuba dive in the summer and i always wanted to teach scuba diving in a, a warm location i fell in love with the caribbean and so i thought i'm going to become a dive instructor so i took diving while i was um at k-rock and i would go all my vacations and dive vacations and i would take courses and I became a, a dive master, and then I became an instructor, and then I became a staff instructor, and finally I became a master instructor. And I said to uh, Krista, my wife, I said, listen, I, you know, I want to quit all this, and I want to teach scuba diving. Well, I still can, you know, because you know, life is finite. It's short. And my big fear was waking up one day with tubes in me, looking up at a you know, white ceiling with doctors running around going I should have done it when I was young so uh, she said that's fine with me honey so we bought a little place in St. Martin uh, that was rented out it was a little place on the hill gorgeous little, little place and then we planned to redo it and so um, in 2000 I quit K-Rock to move there and become a dive instructor and the weird thing was I, you know, when you're a DJ and you quit on the air they, that's it you're gone you don't come back the next day because you can say anything you want. You know, radio stations don't trust you. So I, I signed off on the Friday and Krista knew it was coming that, you know, I was going to give them two months notice and that was it. But that was, they would have me gone. You know, I wouldn't be back on, on Monday. And so I gave my notice to uh, the general manager. Then he called in Kevin Weatherly, the program director. And he said, tell Kevin what you just told me. And I said, look, here's a picture of my house, St. Martin. I'm moving there. I'm selling up everything. I'm quitting the TV shows. I'm quitting writing because I was writing for a, a show on the CW network, which was UPN back then, a tra time travel show. I was writing for it. It was called Seven Days. And I was doing these TV shows. I was doing Casey Kasem's Top Ten. I'd taken over on television, just called America's Top Ten. And um, uh, 
movies and games and videos and a couple of other TV shows. But I quit everything. And so I said, you know, so um, I'm moving to the Caribbean and I've given you two months notice. And Trip Reeves said, so when's your last day? I said, April 27th, because this is February 27th. But I knew it was, it was over right there and then. And he said, okay. And then Kevin said, have you said anything on the air yet? And I said, no. And he goes, well, don't. He said, let, let me talk with Kevin and Bean on Monday and we'll position this. And um, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, we want to make this a big going away for you. I said, so you want me to come back on Monday and, and do my show? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, but aren't you working tomorrow? Isn't that your shift as well? Aren't you your weekend to work? You know, because every other weekend we do a, a three-hour uh, Saturday show. And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, well, you'll be working till April 27th or whenever you want. And I was like, holy shit. And so I got home and Kristen's like, honey, how, how did it go? 18 years, you know, they kick you out of the building. I said, they're making me work till the very end. And we were already, you know, had everything set to be in St. Martin on May 5th. And it's, she was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to pack everything myself. Ah! But uh, it, they gave me an incredible going away party and Duran Duran and Tears for Fears and Billy Idol and Berlin and Drama Rama and English Beat all played and uh, saw me off and, at the palace. And it was, it was just wonderful. It was, the station couldn't have been more loyal to me. It was it was wonderful. Now, did you just get tired? Why'd you come back? Oh, well, it's it's actually the end of the world in my eyes. Uh, my wife's mother, age 47, uh, she flew over. Uh, Krista's dad and mom flew over for our wedding, which was November the, fir- uh, the 1st of 2000. And... She flew in. Uh, I was on the boat finishing up some students, so I couldn't meet them at the airport. And when the boat pulled in that afternoon, I was all excited to go to the house. And everyone had flown in that day. And uh, when I, as I was pulling the boat in, uh, Bobby, who uh, owned the boat, was on the dock, and he was never there because he wanted me to pull the boat in, clean the boat, lift the motors, and all that kind of stuff. He was there, and as I'm pulling it in, he jumps on the boat, grabs the front line, cleats it off, and goes, go. I said, what do you mean? He says, go. I'm like, oh, shit. So I run to the car, and I drive. It's only one mile to the house. And I get to the house, and I'm met there by Ray at the bottom of the stairs. He said, don't come up. Go to the hospital. I said, well, what's happening? He said, just go to the hospital. And I have no clue what's going on. And the hospital is uh, about 20 minutes away. And there was traffic, so I'm driving on the hard shoulder on the inside. Everyone's, oh, no, fuck you, get out. You know, and I'm like, I don't care. I, I don't know what's happened. And I get there, and Krista and her dad are sitting there. And they got tears in their eyes. And I said, what's happened? And they says, mom. And Krista's mother had collapsed in the pool and had a, a, a massive uh, grand mal seizure that had burned out her brain stem and her brain. And she was on full life support, complete life support. The machine was breathing for her. And uh, she died two days before the wedding, age 47, completely unexpected. And it was like, holy shit. And then two years later, uh, I was, I'd just taken my mom who, uh, who was much older. She was 85 at the time. 
1984 uh, to the south of France, and then I'd gone back to LA, and we were getting ready to go back to St. Martin for the uh, summer season, and then through the winter. And um, I'm sitting there in the dental dentist chair, getting a filling, and I get I hear the phone ring in the other room. Don't think anything of it. It's the dental office, you know. They get phone calls all the time, and then the nurse comes in white as a sheet. <laughs> she goes, uh, "Doctor, uh, he needs to take this phone call." And my stomach dropped. I went, oh, God, I was here two years ago, and I knew what it was. And I went, I got up from the, the, dent, from the dental chair with the robe on and everything. My mouth is like this, you know, numb. And I get the call, and it's my brother, and he goes, Mum's in hospital. And they've given her 24 hours to live. And I was like, I said to the dentist, just put, just put anything in my tooth, I've got to go. And uh, I called Krista and I said, make a, a reservation and fly to England. And so I, I flew to England and um, drove down from Heathrow to Torquay, which is 200 miles, uh, about 100 miles an hour. And I got to um, Torbay Hospital and I ran through Torbay Hospital. I knew it because I'd done some hospital radio there actually in the summers. And I ran through the corridors to the uh, heart ward. And I'm calling out, anyone know where Mr. Shepherd is? Anyone know where Mr. Shepherd is? And I hear this voice, oh, I'm over here, my love. And it's my mum, she's sitting there drinking a cup of tea. <laughs> she goes, oh, you look exhausted. Can, I, can, can you get him a cup of tea? And they'd given her 24 hours. She lived five weeks. And uh, they couldn't have treated her better. But when she died, I said to Krista, you know, your dad's still alive. Your cousins, these the, the girls, are like sisters to her. They're still with us. You should spend time with them while we can. And uh, Krista said, what do you mean? I said, I think we should move back. So we sold everything up in St. Martin. We went back to LA with nothing going on. I had nothing, no radio, no TV, no writing, no nothing. And uh, I said, let's just start again. Let's see if we can do it. And so we started all over again. You know, it's one of those things. I thought life was too short. It is too short. It's funny. And now, you know, I know you're on Sirius now. What was it like for a person who was on terrestrial radio to switch to Sirius? Because it seems like it would be much more freedom. Because, you know, I, Alan Hunter, I interviewed Alan. I think he said that you can, like, record anytime you want. Like, it's just different. I mean, what's it like for you now to be able to sit there when Sirius happened and when it was XM and it was Sirius and it was, you know, all these different things? But did they court you saying we know people love this guy and we know there's a demand for him how did you end up with them yeah it was kind of like that and it was very weird um i got the, uh, two calls in the space of like three days one of them was in when i was walking across the parking lot of circuit city which is no longer around i don't think and that was from star 98.7 and they said um ryan seacrest is leaving and going to kiss fm to do mornings because of his popularity on american idol we need a name so would you come and do an afternoon feature every day so there's not this gap of us losing ryan so uh i said can i pre-record it or do i have to come in they said no but i'll pre-record it and drop it off on a monday on a cd back then you know and so i said okay I can, I can do that and i went in and ryan and i did some promos together so i started two years on star 98.7 and two days later sirius was starting up uh, or they caught me 
and uh, they explained what satellite radio was at the time. They had 235,000 subscribers. That was it. And now it's 36.7 million or whatever. And um, so I said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll try that. It sounds like fun, satellite radio. And satellite radio was fun. It was great. Star 98.7 was the worst experience I've ever had. It was awful. It's the only time I've worked for money. It's the only time I've prostituted myself. Why was it so bad? Because it was run by people that didn't like music. None of them came from music. None of them came from programming. They all came from sales. And the music was the interruption for the commercials. And it was just fucking horrible. <laughs> and after two years, I was, I wanted out. I just wanted to quit on the air and just get the hell out of there. And actually, it was a jock meeting. We had a, a jock meeting, and um, they said, you know, we've done our research. Right there, you know, you're in trouble. We've done our research, and what we want is your personality, meaning all the jocks, not just mine, Danny Bonaduce and people like that. We want your personality really to shine through, but in seven seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to run a timer, and you've got seven seconds on the air to go from the song to the commercial. And as part of that seven seconds, don't forget, you've got to get the time and the call letters, and then something really entertaining. So in, in three seconds, right? So we got three seconds to be super entertaining. And they said, yeah. And they said, and the other thing we need and this will really help the ratings, is a great catchphrase. So I want you all to come up with a great catchphrase. And we played the same songs over and over. I mean, the repetition was just ridiculous. So I said, I, I, got, I got a catchphrase for you. And they said, what? And I said, star 98.7 for the 23 songs that you don't already have in your iPod. And they went, that's not funny. And I went, no, you're right. It's not. And I got up and I walked out and I was just done. I was, it was pathetic. Now you're on Sirius, which is great. And you're, you're yeah. doing great. And you started a podcast. What made you decide to do the podcast? Was it, um, well, just because you knew so many people and you knew people would listen because you know, you're a good interviewer and, and you know, these people, you know, it's like, I always say I interview, I've done over 800 episodes and I have actors and I have musicians and I right. get people pitched to me. And, and if I don't really know them, I can't do the interview because it doesn't gain my interest. You know, for you, is it easier because you know John Taylor? I know you recently had Dave Wakeling on. You know, you've had a bunch of people on. Is it easier because you know these guys and you've shared stories and you probably have dirt on each other? But uh, what made you decide to do it and how do you pick your guests? Well, it's can be easier. Sometimes, you know, you feel like, oh, I'm going to be asking the same questions that I've asked before, or I'm going to ask John a question that he knows I know the answer to. But um, I just enjoy having conversations with people. But I did the podcast because and do the podcast because it's for Sirius. It's not it's not my podcast. Uh, Sirius XM bought one of the world's biggest podcast distributors. And so podcasts then became uh, available to them and so on the Sirius XM app they put this podcast section in and they came to me and said would you do a podcast every two weeks 
And I said, absolutely. That sounds like fun because that way I can do the podcast and not be, have any time constraints because uh, even on Sirius, you know, where they, they don't limit you to seven seconds, obviously, you know, if you've got something to say, say it. But with the podcast, I can talk with um, John Taylor for an hour and a half and not worry and then cut the songs in later and not worry about anything. So uh, it gave me a chance to really do an in-depth interview with these bands. And uh, it's become super, super enjoyable. And I, you know, I just did Sparks, which goes up today um, on uh, the podcast with Ron and Russell Mayo. And that was just fabulous. We, we just had a, such a great time. And so it was a, an opportunity to do something I'd never really done before. Um, not to have any kind of time constraint or worry about cutting to commercials or a song. So uh, it was something a serious approach me with, but I was more than happy to say yes to. Now, what do you think keeps the 80s alive? You know, I always talk to people from college, and you know, whenever I post a picture of me with an 80s act, they're like, oh my God, I love you. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 57. So, you know, the 80s were a very special time, you know, high school and college for me. But, but now in the last probably 10 or 15 years because I went to the Greek to see some of those shows, the Retro Futura tour and all them. And in Philly, I was at the 80s show before the shutdown where it was, you know, a bunch of people were on my show. What do you think has made this resurgence in 80s? Because young kids, young kids dig it now. Like, it's one of those things, it's, it's, it was for us, we understand why it was so great because it was great music. But what do you think is the resurgence? What do you think brought it back that people are just going crazy over it now again i think it got brought back for two two different ways i think kids discover music prior to maybe not quite as much now with uh, prior to spotify um by through their parents itunes library and i think they just went through the itunes library and just clicked on songs and went oh i like this one don't like this one, don't like this one, like this one, like this one. And so they would click on Aha, take on me and go, oh, I like that. And they'd drag it over into their library. And um, I, so I think a lot of that they didn't worry that it was 80s or whatever, they just liked the sound. And they also discovered a lot of those songs that became familiar with songs like uh, Cars and Iran through video games because they were being used in video games and in soundtracks of movies and shows on the CW that use a lot of uh, 80s songs. And so I think that's why the kids like them. And the growth of the 80s is because I think the two most, the two best decades for music in our lifetime have been the 60s and the 80s. The 60s and the 80s have a lot in common in the fact that so many new bands came on almost every week. In the 60s, it was the Beatles, it was during the Pacemakers, it was the Beach Boys, the Doors, the Who. And the, in the 80s, it was the same way. We had to learn all these names. What What's a flock of seagulls, you know? <laughs> Tears for Fears, Wham! with an exclamation point, and now they're Wham! UK. What the hell's going on? But it was all this new music would come out all the time. And... The kids, I think, really relate to that. And I'll be doing uh, a, a live gig. Um, sometimes, you know, I'll be doing like a 50th birthday party and the kids are there. And the kids will come up to request a song and I go, here we go. I know it's going to be <laughs> DJ Khalid. And they'll come up and they'll go, uh, do you have that new one from Dua Lipa? And I'll go, yeah, sure I do. And uh, 
could you play uh, Michael Jackson, Be There, and also Rio from Duran Duran? I'm looking at these kids and I'm going, you were negative 15 when Rio was released, and you, and that's what they want to hear, along with Dua Lipa, and, and it's it's amazing that to see that, and so I think that is part of the resurgence that good music almost becomes timeless. One final question, and this is this I, I'm really looking forward to your answer to this, because okay. you were a DJ back when you had the slug you know pull your system and the albums and all that stuff to the to the gigs and now things seems they have changed it seems more tech what is it like for you now when you perform do you go old school and bring bring lug all your stuff and bring your albums or you do go no i'm just going to do it where it's easier for me oh i i am very high tech when i do my gigs i have a, a digital mixer a laptop and i almost junk the laptop recently and went with uh, one of the, the new ones which have the computer built into the mixer but um, there was just a couple of things about it I didn't like and I wait for version 2 so where the screen tilts up so it's easier to see uh, but no I, I was as much as I like the sound of vinyl I wrote in world in my eyes the line there is nothing heavier in the world than a milk crate full of vinyl and ask any DJ why he's got a bad back and he'll point to that milk crate so i was happy to to ditch vinyl particularly if you're doing a gig outdoors a pool party in southern california and the sun's coming down you know you queue up people are people from depeche mode and by the time you get two minutes in the record's going people people so it's it's great to go digital uh but i try and still treat it like it's vinyl so you know when i play the songs um, I've got them queued up, and uh, nothing is auto-mixed, nothing is auto-segued, uh, nothing is pre-programmed. So I've got my folders, just like I have with the old milk crates. You know, this one would be the, the hottest dance songs. This one would be the albums. This one would be the slower tracks. And that's how I get it organized. So I still DJ as if it was vinyl, but it's now high-tech and everything is digital. Well, that's awesome, Richard. I want to thank you for taking time to talk to me. Tell everyone where they can find you. I know you're in Sirius. I listen to Sirius. I listen to First Wave. I, you know, I have all the different stuff. I, I'm, I'm a music lover. I have Amazon Music Unlimited. I have Sirius. I have, you know, it's just crazy. But tell everyone where they can find you and how they can keep up with your career. Okay, so I'm on uh, Sirius XM uh, Channel 33, which is First Wave, playing you alternative 80s. In other words, we're not playing the pop 80s. We're playing you the Smiths. And New Order and Depeche Mode and In Excess and Pet Shop Boys and stuff like that every day in the afternoon Pacific time it would be noon to 6 East Coast it would be 3 to 9 love to have you tune in if you want to follow me on Facebook it's Richard Blade page and you look for the blue verification tick yeah I got that but Twitter still will not verify me I've been turned down twice so stupid for Twitter. I, I don't know why I don't know what else I have to do but um, you know, so people go, is this your page? Yes, it is, you know. Uh, and you can find my website if you want uh, and get details about the books and everything that I've written. And that is uh, Richard Blade page. You'll find me on Amazon um, and you'll just type in Richard Blade. And the next novel comes out in the fall. Is that what you said? Well, in the fall, it's going to not be a novel. It's going to be 80s related. Okay. I, I don't want to give it away um, because it was an idea I just recently had. My novel, the next next novel is finished, though, and it'll come out in the springtime, and that's another different genre. It's a big action 
military genre called Ghosts of the Congo. And again, based on a screenplay I, I wrote, but you'll you'll like it. It's uh, it's got a lot of twists in it and a lot of action. So there's not going to be a moment where you can put the book down and go to sleep. You're going to go, oh damn, you blew my night of sleeping again. I got to finish this, mother. <laughs> you heard it here, people. So go to richardblade.com and has all his info. It has all his uh, books, his you know his his autobiography, his novels. Uh, follow him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 860 episodes. Email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Instagram, I'm coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.